It's Philosophy Talk. I'm the son of a black man from Kenya and a white woman from Kansas. What race is a person with one black parent and one white parent? Black? White? Neither black nor white? Whichever race they choose to live as? Whatever race the world describes them as? I have brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, uncles, and cousins of every race and every hue. Race was once a simple construct. But more and more people can claim biracial ancestry. What does this demographic explosion mean for our old racial vocabulary? Is one drop still enough? Our guest is Michelle Elam, author of Mixed Race in the New Millennium. You know, I've always maintained that Obama is an Irish name. You just put the apostrophe after the O and we're all set. Biracial identity. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Uh, except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, biracial identities. Thanks to Barack Obama, biracial is the new cool, Ken. But what deep philosophical questions does that raise? Well, it raises lots of questions. I mean, biracial identities challenge our understanding of race. I I think biracial identities actually threaten to push our old concepts of race to the breaking point. Come on, Ken. Race Race is a reality. It isn't going anywhere. You can cross some breed species to produce hybrids, but you can and you can cross breed races to produce people of biracial ancestry. What's the big problem? What's the challenge to our understanding of race in that? Well, race may be a reality, John, but it's not a biological reality the way your remarks presuppose. I mean, once upon a time, people did believe that there were such things as biologically grounded racial essences, and these essences, racial essences were supposed to distinguish people from each other in socially and morally relevant ways, but you know, modern biology will have none of that, none of that. Well, if, if modern biology will have none of it, then shouldn't we conclude that there are no races? But if there are no races, Ken, you're not a black man, I'm not a white man, and Obama is not a biracial man. And, and that's, that's sort of absurd. I mean, let, let me put the question to you directly, Ken. Are you now, or have you ever been, a black man? Of course I am a black man, John. And you're a white man, and a Barack Obama as well. He's more complicated. Though. I mean, we like to think of him as our first black president, but he's really as much and no more a black man than he is a white man. Well, I mean, forgive me if I'm a little confused, but you just claim that races aren't real. And now you're defiantly, or was it reluctantly, admitting to being a black man. What gives? Well, the fact that races aren't biologically real doesn't mean there's nothing to the concept of race. National identities aren't biologically real either, but national identities can matter quite a lot in human affairs, you know? Okay, that all makes sense. Uh, Race isn't a biological reality, it is a social reality. Fine. But I still don't see how biracial identities push our concept of race to the breaking point, as you claim. Well, let's let's make some distinctions. That'll help clear it up. Let's distinguish between race and racial identifications. We'll reserve concepts of race for something that's biologically grounded, at, at least in its pretensions. And we'll reserve racial identifications for something that's socially and culturally grounded. When I acknowledged being a black man, proudly, by the way, Proudly, I wasn't making any claim about my biology. I was making a claim about my social and cultural heritage. Okay, okay, but but again, it sounds like racial identifications, as you define them, 
are very much akin to ethnic identifications or national identifications. And where's the threat to the very idea of race? Well, go back to what I was saying earlier about biology and race. Even though we now know that racial categories are just biologically empty, we still we still have this deeply ingrained cultural habit of identifying ourselves in racial terms. But, you know, it turns out that our racial identifications are anchored in, well, well, nothing, really. And, and our struggle to make sense of biracial identities, I think that helps us to see how, how empty those, those categories really are. Uh, let, let me try to understand it. Take, take Barack Obama. What, what race does he belong to? And, and why, on, on your view, does he belong? to that race? Is he black, white, or, or something else entirely? Well, in the old days, the one-drop rule told us the answer. If you had one drop of black blood, then you were ipso facto black. As you say, we, we like to think of Obama as the first black president, and, and he himself accepts that categorization. But if you look at it from a cultural, social perspective, especially given his upbringing, wouldn't you have to say that it was at least as much, if not more, of a white man than a black man? Well, unfortunately, it's, it's not that simple. I think Obama's got two and only two socially acceptable options. Like, like a growing number of people on a sort of multiracial vanguard, he could, and, and we'd allow him to, self-identify himself as a f- biracial person, full stop. Or he could do the less culturally threatening and more standard thing and self-identify as black, full stop. But, you know, we're not yet at the point where Barack Obama is socially allowed to self-identify as white rather than black. Well, what do you mean he's not socially allowed? He's the bleeping president of the United States, for crying out loud. Surely he's free to self-identify as whomever or whatever he chooses. You know that's not true. You and I both know that's not true. It may not be conscious, but white people and black people alike have a, have a deep cultural investment in maintaining the racial status quo. The majority of us sort of force biracial people into our old, comfortable racial categories. And, and you know, mostly we pigeonhole them into the socially marked race. In, in America, that would be the black race rather than allow them into the socially unmarked race that in America. That, that would be the white race. Not even the president of the bleeping United States can change that fact, even if he wanted to. This is very complicated stuff, you, and as usual, you have an unusually subtle point of view, which seems to be that you're terribly proud to be a black man, which is a racial identification that is based on nothing. So we've certainly got a lot to think through. You know, we do, and to help us, we'll be joined by Michelle Elam, author of the forthcoming Mixed Race in the New Millennium, in a and, little bit. And, and we'd like our listeners to help us, too. You can join the conversation by calling 1-800-525-9917. But first, we'll hear from someone who has first-hand experience at navigating the complex waters of biracial identity. That would be the granddaughter of our very own John Perry. A roving philosophical reporter, Julie Napolin, files this report. When I walk down the street, I'm a black person. I'm not a biracial person. Anissa Tanksley is a 16-year-old student at Brandon High School in San Jose, California. She says she's always had trouble finding her place in the world because of her biracial identity. My mother is Irish and my father is African-American. My parents were divorced when I was younger and I'm not in connection with my father at this point. While she sees her African-American aunt and cousins frequently, she's always felt at odds with them. Because they're my only, you know, connection to my African-American, you know, roots, it seems that I'm just like the visitor, you know, not really part of it. I mean, and they love me dearly and I love them too, but it just seems that I do not fit in the same way. 
Anissa doesn't feel like she fully fits into her white family either, or with the friends she grew up with at her mostly white school. When I'm around people that aren't black, it kind of manifests itself that I am black. I don't see the half white in me, or I don't recognize it. And it seems that it's not recognized around me. When I'm around a group of white people, I always feel like there's something between me and them, and that creates a barrier. She says that barrier is largely due to her skin color and not just the social perceptions attached to it. It's hard to look at friends and family and think, I don't look like you. When I'm around black people, I do realize that I'm half white. But the thing is, when people see me, they don't say that person's white or that person's half white because my predominant you know, race is black. You see me as black. There's a disconnect between being and appearance. For Anissa, that dual aspect of her identity makes it hard to feel like she belongs. Just the stereotypes, really, the way that we view white people and the way that we view black people. And that's really messed up my perception of how I view myself, because these two conflicting cultures, when you're living with two extremes, it kind of puts you in the middle by yourself. The most difficult place for Anissa is high school. Brandon High is only about 1% African-American. As she prepares to go to college, Anissa has recently been thinking about Howard University, an historically black college in Washington, D.C. Being around such a diverse group of African-Americans would almost be empowering because I would realize that there's not just one type of African-American. I can be African-American even though I don't think that I fit into this you know, singular group of African-Americans because there's so many. I would say that Howard is the mecca for African-Americans. Anita Nahal is professor of history and director of international studies at Howard University. She would gain from the fact that she's biracial, but she's coming to a majority black institution, a place where they feel that it's uniquely theirs. But at the same time, she will be also able to uh, retain her biracial identity because there's so many others like her. I wanted to go to Howard to put myself in that extreme and hopefully, you know, crush all the biases that I had. Once I start viewing people objectively and not placing them into these stereotypical positions, I can see myself as more than just, you know, a half white or a half black person. I don't want to look at myself as just, you know, the person torn between being white or being black. I just want to be, be myself. Be what you are, my friend, and live For Philosophy Talk, I'm Julie Napolin. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.